You are back with the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The need for organ, eye, and tissue donation in Hawaii is greater than ever. Here in our islands, the nonprofit Legacy of Life Hawaii is the only organization designated by the federal government to recover organs and tissue for transplant. According to its data, 17 people die each day in the U.S. waiting for an organ transplant, while another person is added to the nation's transplant waiting list every nine minutes. The conversation's Russell Subiano talked with Felicia Wells-Williams, the Director of Clinical Services at Legacy of Life Hawaii, and Dr. Linda Wong, a transplant surgeon at Queens Medical Center. We start off with Wells-Williams. Do you have an idea of how many people are on the transplant waiting list, both nationally and here in Hawaii? I know that in Hawaii, there's about 351 patients that are waiting for life-saving transplants. The majority of them are waiting for kidney and then another you know, subset of that waiting for liver transplant. And nationally, it's over 120,000 that are waiting. So we do have a pretty significant amount of people here that are, are, are waiting for some sort of transplant. Yes, absolutely. Dr. Wong, numbers aside, why is the need for organ, eye, and tissue donation so important in our state right now? I think there are many patients who are waiting on dialysis for transplant. And there are people that are dying from liver disease because they can't get a liver in time. And so I think it's really important to try to save these people. So you're saying the, the biggest need sounds like kidney and liver transplants? At the moment, those are the only organs that we are transplanting in. We are taking oh. out other organs, and some of them are going to mainland centers. Felicia, in your capacity at Legacy of Life Hawaii, how have you seen the pandemic impact transplants across the state or the ability to do transplants? So at Legacy of Life Hawaii, we are on the donor side, right? So we're working with families of patients who have the opportunity to be organ donors. And how we've seen the pandemic impact that is really by really hospitals have been forced to limit visitors. So families don't have the opportunity to gather in you know, the ways that have generally been traditional in our community where large groups come together to support each other you know, at end of life. And so now we have families who have limited visitation, limited access to their loved ones. And so when we're talking to them about donation, that adds sometimes to the stress of the family that some of the rituals that they would have wanted to have, they're unable to have really because of safety for the community. And Dr. Wong, on the medical side of things, has the pandemic impacted the amount of transplants that we've been able to do in the last two years? Interestingly enough, it really hasn't. You know, we haven't shut our doors or closed down or did any less last year because of the pandemic. We kept on going. I think what makes things a little bit more complicated is that all of the donors and the recipients have to be tested for COVID beforehand. So it's a little bit more work on our part, but the numbers have been pretty similar. I think that over the last few years, I think that more of our referrals for patients who need liver transplants are related to patients who drink, who drank a lot of alcohol. And I think that alcohol has been an issue during the pandemic. Some of it is depression, maybe you know, loneliness or something, but it seems like there was a lot more alcohol related liver disease during that time. We only transplant patients with alcohol history who stopped drinking alcohol and really made a commitment to staying off of alcohol. So it's been a little bit of work to do that during the pandemic. We know that people have been coping through the pandemic in a, in a variety of ways, and uh, I'm sure that alcohol has been one of them. And Felicia, most people are familiar with organ transplants, you know, kidney, liver, heart, but it seems to me that the general public is less familiar with the need for eye and two donations. Can you talk about how those donations are used? Yeah, so the really interesting thing about, and important thing about tissue donation, so as you mentioned, cornea, bone, skin, sometimes vessels of the, arm, of the legs, for example. Organ donation is the one in which it's much more rare. And so I think that while we may not talk about it as much in the community, you know, tissue donation, many more of our, many more people in our community have been able to be tissue donors. And so we do know that, you know, because what happens is when someone dies, say, for example, in an emergency room and their heart is stopped, the gift that they can give are tissues and cornea. And so that is the circumstance for most people. 
when we look at the breakdowns of ethnicities for who is at the highest risk for organ failure and would therefore be in the need of a transplant, what do the numbers say? You know, people in minority communities are primarily those who are at greatest risk for kidney disease. I think Dr. Wong can also talk a little bit more about that and what they're seeing in the clinical setting. But what we know is that generally patients in the minority communities based on, you know, a number of factors, including, you know, socioeconomic status, health status, access to equitable health. That's, you know, something we see across the nation. And so it's really important that when we talk about donation, we talk about it in all communities because of some of the tissue typing that is done. And we just, you know, it really is that the people who can give when you, you know, diverse communities give in donations diverse communities are able to be transplanted. Dr. Wong, your father was also a doctor and conducted some of the first organ transplants in our state. Where is our state now when it comes to our capability to perform successful transplants? My dad started this program a long time ago. And, you know, back then it was probably a whole lot less organized. And you know, now we have Legacy of Life that really helps us go out to the community and try to encourage organ donation. We try to spread the word so more people are aware of it. And we, you know, back when my dad started, they didn't have you know, designation and a registry so that you could really make their wishes known. And so it was probably a lot harder back then. You know, they concentrated more on living donation. So in living donation, you know, a brother, a sister, a friend, or somebody. If they have a similar blood type, they can donate a kidney to their loved one, and that can prevent them from having to wait on a long list. So because they didn't have as many organ donors, uh, that's what was done. But now that we have Legacy of Life, we have a, a chance to even make this better. According to Legacy of Life, another person is added to the nation's organ transplant waiting list every nine minutes, and 17 people die each day waiting for an organ transplant. I can only imagine that that list is going to continue to grow. What can the individual do to help? That's such an important question. As individuals, people can learn about donation, make a personal decision about donation, and then register your wishes. You can register by indicating that on your driver's license, or you can go to registerme.org and sign up to be an organ donor. It's important that families talk about it. When someone does not indicate their wishes on the registry, then families are in the position to make that decision at the time of death. And so we know that when families have had a conversation and they know their wishes, loved one, their loved one's wishes, they choose to honor those. That's that has just really not been a challenge for us when the wishes are known. What families struggle with often, though, is not knowing what someone wanted. And so we talk to families about what was their loved one like? What kinds of decisions would they make generally? How giving and sharing were they? And that's how families make a decision. But I would say really the number one thing that we can do as individuals is say yes to donation, lives are saved. Dr. Wong, your thoughts? You know, there's over 120,000 people waiting on the list. And it's gonna be hard to find organs for all of these people. And I think that an individual can try to do their best to take care of themselves so that they don't ever end up on dialysis, so they don't end up needing organs. Everybody should take good care of their health, try not to do large quantities of alcohol, see their doctors. So if they have things like hepatitis B or hepatitis C, they get it treated, they get it taken care of. If they have diabetes or high blood pressure, they manage it well with their physician. So the goal as an individual is to not only sign your organ donor card, but Try to take good care of your health so that you don't ever put yourself in a position of needing an organ. And I would agree with that, Dr. Wong, because I'll often say to people when they ask me about donation, I'll say, well, I hope you live long and healthy and that you use your organs up yourself. But in the, in the event that you can be a donor, I hope you'll make your wishes known. That was a conversation with transplant surgeon Dr. Linda Wong, Felicia Wells-Williams of Legacy of Hawaii, uh, Legacy of Life Hawaii. They were talking to HPR's Russell Subiono about the need for organ, eye, and tissue donation in the islands. Full disclosure, Legacy of Life Hawaii is an underwriter of Hawaii Public Radio.
One in five Maui homes sits vacant while we grapple with the housing crisis. Crisis that is the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair joins us this morning. Hi, Chad. Good morning, Catherine. So we have this story uh, by um, Marina Riker. Right. She's our Maori reporter. And as anybody that's been reading Civil Beat knows, we've expanded our coverage, uh, not just Honolulu-centric, but uh, like HPR, you know, we're mm-hmm. focused on the entire state. So Marina's story today kind of caught me by surprise as well. You and I were talking earlier, one in five housing units uh, on Maui, not Maui County, but Maui, uh, are vacant. That's that's out of 15,000 total. So 3,000, right? Now, why is that important? Well, because Maui needs 10,000 homes by the year 2025, which is just a couple of years away to keep up with demand. And so that's why it's got, according to Marina's story, it's our lead story today. And by the way, it's getting a lot of traffic. A lot of people are commenting on it. That has pushed the Maui County Council to consider raising taxes on vacant uh um, excuse me, vacation and investment properties that are called non-owner occupied. In other words, they're just sitting there. The owners don't come out. They don't run it that often. And uh, why don't we tax them at a higher rate, specifically if the property uh, is $3 million and above, uh, to try and address the housing shortage here in the islands, and you know, specifically on Maui in this case, of course. Yes. And, you know, we have watched Maui County do some bold things, you know, when it comes to vacation rentals, you know, and, and now with this, uh, because it's certainly this is something that that other counties are looking at. You know, we, we've got a lot of empty apartments, condos just sitting vacant. You look up on the high right. rises and, and the, the units are dark. And by the way, that tax, if it is approved, it, it would actually also go to upgrade roads and sewers and water systems. It's all connected, all part of the infrastructure. So the budget is being hashed out right now. We expect to see the Maui County do something shortly, the council members there. The average sale, a typical sale for a home on Maui, $1.15 million. Uh, and that's a lot more than just two years ago, pre-COVID. An amazing jump in prices, $380,000 more uh, since uh, COVID first came. And, of course, that COVID uh, fueled a surge of -of out-of-state folks buying properties, right, but also fueled a lot of local folks losing their jobs. So this is not a a small matter. This is very serious. Rents have also soared, not just the prices of homes, uh, but rents. And as you know, we've had an out-migration in the state overall the last number of years. Yeah, and, uh, you know, like I said, other places have tried to uh, tax these luxury, you know, vacation homes. I think we saw, you know, Canada uh, do that. Yeah, Vancouver, Mm -hmm. Vancouver, Oakland, California, uh, Washington, D.C., Honolulu is looking at something similar, not exactly the same. Uh, We should point out that, you know, expensive homes are already taxed higher at a higher rate. Uh, on Maui, that's that's something that's applauded by progressive uh, policymakers who feel that that is important. That is not necessarily the norm across the U.S., where you have varying property tax rates. And, in fact, critics of this, and there are quite a few, as you can imagine, say, "Look, this is unfair. This is class warfare." But in fact, Marina did some digging, and she found out that even with these luxury properties and these higher taxes, you're still paying lower than the average the national average. And and so that, you know, they feel it's fair game, but it's an immense industry trying to preserve uh, uh, the the cost, uh, the needs. I should also point out a lot of local folks own some of these properties too, right? They're renting them out. Uh, there's multi-generations living under uh, one house, not as many as you might think, but that's a factor too. Are, are they going to be burned? Should Maui County have a higher property tax for luxury properties? Yeah, and we did see the county pass the Aina Kapuna laws, you know, which are right. uh, hoping to, uh, you know, prevent local families from just being, you know, priced out of their their homes, right? Their property. Right. Yeah, exactly. And something we can all uh, relate to here, even though, you know, the economy is rebounding, we are seeing the tourists returning, including the Japanese, right? Right in time for Golden Week, where that's just coming out now, now some folks in in that regard, too. Uh, But, you know, ultimately, this does come down to, do we have enough places for people to live? And when I say people, I mean, people who live here, people who were born and raised here, people that want to spend their their senior years here, people that are planning to to die here. Um, Instead of favoring, as it appears to to some that we are uh, looking to, well, really, we've had a pretty good deal for people that don't live here, buying these properties, 
selling them, flipping them, whatever the case may be. So th- this is a big struggle that Maui County is going to have to deal with. By the way, it's also an election year, not exactly mm. when you want to be raising property taxes. Uh, but a lot of these folks don't live here and probably don't vote here either. Yeah, well, we have heard that, you know, uh, Hawaii's property taxes you know, are rates like the lowest. Um, they are, and um, yeah, that's something that a lot of people like, but should they be raised? And I'm not even going to go there today, Catherine. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Yeah, but it, it is a it is a, a touchy subject, and um, you know Maui is uh, trying to wrestle the 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 bull to the ground. So we'll see uh, how this plays out. But thanks so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. Take care. All right, that was editor Chad Blair with today's reality check. To read Marina's story online, head to civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art. Japanese design, Rinpa, explores fundamentals of Japanese design with works by artists who infused aesthetics into all aspects of life. Opens May 5th, honolulumuseum.org. From Nazi Germany to Mussolini's Italy, women's rights were early targets of fascist regimes. Now, some historians look at contemporary American politics and see... The state taking over that control is... It's a kind of litmus test, I would say, of where things might be evolving to. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the world. Calling all residents of our concrete jungle, we've got a challenge for you. The City Nature Challenge, to be exact. Started six years ago as a friendly competition between Los Angeles and San Francisco, the challenge is now a global bio-blitz with close to 250 cities participating worldwide. The event starts this Friday on April 29th. Participants need to download the iNaturalist app on their phones And then they have four days to photograph as many different species of plants and animals in their cities as they can. The conversation Savannah Harriman-Poet spoke with John Starmer, the volunteer coordinator for City Nature Challenge on Maui, about how folks here in the islands can participate and, more importantly, how we can win. And basically you take a picture of some sort of wildlife. It could be plant, animal, and the app actually has some artificial intelligence, some computer vision uh, stuff that kind of will pop up suggested IDs for you to help you identify it, and then you sort of ID it to the best you can. Basically, everybody that participates also has the chance to sort of vote on your ID, and with three people sort of agreeing that whatever you have observed is a certain species, that actually becomes what they call research grade, and this is where the sort of science part comes in. Up to this point, it's kind of like, yeah, you're, you're competing with folks, and you maybe can figure out uh, some plant or animal, maybe in your backyard or elsewhere in your neighborhood. But the database that is being generated when it gets research grade is actually um, pushed over into what's called the GBIF, Global Biodiversity Information Forum database, which is a global database, as you would imagine, of biodiversity around the world that you can go and search and see where the things that you're finding in your backyard are found elsewhere in the world. I want to get to all of the benefits of having access to this research in just a moment. But first, City Nature Challenge, it has challenge in the title. How do I win? Well, uh, with COVID, it's been less of a challenge and more of a community effort. But I think now as, as we're coming out of it, we're going back to the challenge aspect of things. There's sort of the, the overarching which city can get the most observations, the most species, the most new species. They've got a bunch of different categories. You know, over the years, people have pointed out, hey, it's not really fair for, you know, because it is now global. Folks in the spring up in, in Canada and the Arctic, it's still wintertime, whereas uh, down south, say in South America, it's the middle of summer. So you get some very seasonal variation in diversity. So what's happened is they're starting now to say, all right, well, if you're in the northern hemisphere above a certain latitude, who's who's got the most species? And, and throughout the challenge, there's sort of been this 
individual cities would challenge themselves or challenge each other sort of in the spirit of the first city nature challenge where it was uh, LA versus San Francisco. So certain cities have been in some cases competing now for years to see which of the two cities can uh, get the most observations, the most participants, things like that. Have any of our urban areas here in Hawaii thrown down the gauntlet against any other cities? We have not. Um, I've been sort of puttering along here in Maui for now about six years. Um, Last year, Oahu finally joined, and uh, it was sort of touch and go and last minute, and and I've I've considered challenging Oahu. But hopefully in in the near future here, as as we see more cities in Hawaii at least uh, participate, it would be fun to compete within the islands here. John, I'm in Honolulu right now. Should we do this? You versus me? I think so. (laughs) All right. Well, this is the official announcement of a Honolulu versus Maui City Nature Challenge coming up this April. But I also want to take a moment to talk about how this is valuable to you as a researcher. Have there been any instances in the data or the observations that have come forward from this particular event that have been really instrumental in the work that you do, or even just bizarre one-offs where you see someone photograph a particular species that we didn't know was in that area or perhaps we had not seen in a while? Yeah, that's that's actually uh, one of the cool things about this. And throughout the world, there have been sort of rediscoveries of things that were thought to be extinct. There have been a lot of kind of what they call range extensions, so observations of things that weren't extinct but weren't known to exist in an area. All sorts of new new uh, observations have come out of this uh, because it's, we're, we're really getting to the point where it's almost, not quite, but almost a, a million observations over the course of four d- days happening because we're getting so many people participating. And the City Nature Challenge publishes sort of a, a graph of number of observations on the iNaturalist platform and you can very clearly see the big spikes that happen over the during the challenge locally here one of the things that I'm doing is I've created a project which is basically a way to aggregate observations and uh, I'm, I'm working at identifying areas where there's freshwater coming out into the coastal areas so, so if you're walking along the beach and you see some hard substrate some rocks or lava you know the algae that's growing there can tell you whether there's fresh water or not. The, there's a one called sea lettuce, sort of a flat, leafy green algae that is pretty characteristic if you have fresh water flowing out there. So I just created a project. which, If you go out and take see that and take a photo with your phone and say, you know, sea lettuce, and it gets loaded up into the, the project automatically, and I get to see that record. Uh, and then I can go and test the water over there and see how fresh or salty it is. As the City Nature Challenge develops more of a repertoire, I believe it was started in 2016 between San Francisco and Los Angeles, so six years ago. As we start to gather more of a history of these observations over the years, I wonder if this warm, lighthearted challenge that encourages people to be more aware of the species that we share our landscapes with will start to pick up on some disturbing trends. We are in the middle of a biodiversity crisis. It's quite possible. And and one of the challenges in understanding trends in diversity is just having the records of observations. So even though it is lighthearted, even though uh, it is the sort of thing where anybody can participate, one of the, the big benefits to citizen science is you can get anybody really to help promote science, and in this case, biodiversity and conservation science. And I mean, if you think about it, last year, about 800,000 observations were made. There is no way that a single scientist studying any groups of animals or you know, biodiversity as a whole would be able to make that many observations over the course of four days, let alone a year. So it, it is really uh, a way that we are effectively starting to put eyes on what's happening for the, the local biodiversity in our area. And we should see trends. Uh, hopefully, you know, we see the cities starting to, to plant more trees or planting more native trees that are more conducive to, to, you know, promoting local or native biodiversity. But with things like climate change, which are just overall changing the environment in cities especially, they tend to be hotter, and then we start seeing things leaving. And 
it's very possible that we will see things like that. For a place like Hawaii, do you think we could document the encroachment of invasive species as well? Absolutely. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, you know, if you take a picture of something that ends up being identified as threatened or endangered, one thing that happens is that the exact observation location gets obscured. So if you find something like a endangered plant, people don't go and, and take it or at least can't do it with the iNaturalist app. But it also helps give them records of observations over time. And I have multiple times have reported uh, water hyacinth, which is a invasive plant that, that grows in streams in a local wetland. And each time it's happened, it seems like somebody's paying attention because about a week later, somebody comes and, and clears it out. So uh, I think the invasive species committees on the different islands are, are tracking that as well. So it's actually a utilitarian tool to keep invasives out. What's the craziest thing someone has documented using the iNaturalist app in one of the city nature challenges? I, I know in uh, California there were some pretty exciting uh, observations of, of predators like bears and mountain lions in suburban areas. There was also one observation of a, it was a dead sunfish, a mola mola. It's a huge ocean-going fish, uh, lives offshore, eats jellyfish, um, really unusual critter, but this was a species that was washed up in California, and the only other record of it had been over in Australia. So a huge range extension, so really helped change the perspective of where these animals were found. Uh, and it was only the se second or third time this thing had been observed since it was described, so that was pretty cool. Hmm. Yeah, particularly when we get into discussions about marine species, it just reminds us how much we do not know. Absolutely. And and honestly, the there there are surprises in terrestrial areas, too. I mean, new, new species have been discovered. Basically, they were initially observed. Nobody could figure out what they were. And then some specialists figured out, hey, this is actually a new species. The power of having people just going out and, and looking to help understand the diversity in, in on the planet is really amazing. John, thank you just once more for your time. I really have appreciated it. And I'm looking forward to seeing you go down. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck. I'll be keeping an eye on Oahu this year. That was Joan Starmer, the volunteer coordinator for City Nature Challenge on Maui and lead scientist at Maui Nui Marine Resource Council. He was speaking with the conversation Savannah Harriman Pote. For more information on how to participate in this year's challenge, check out the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Jill Coriel fell hard for hibiscus. She credits Hawaii botanist Isabella Abbott for getting her into ethnobotany. That led to the involvement in the Hibiscus Society and her life's work in hybridizing hibiscus. Her research into the Hawaii history of this flower provides a context of how this hobby blossomed over the last century. Coriel continues to propagate plants at her nursery on Oahu's North Shore, and she continues to share her joy for this special flower that is deep-rooted in her heart hybrid hibiscus really do belong to Hawaii. So there had been hybridizing in other parts of the world, but as near as I can tell in research, it was a small uh, amount of hybridizing that were done. But here we had um, a group of 15 people, mostly sugar planters and their extended family members, including three women who uh, started hybridizing, and by 1911, they had created a 1,000 hybrid hibiscus using a variety of native Hawaiian hibiscus and uh, 35 introduced species. I've seen, you know, a list of some of the natives, and, and a number of them are white. We have actually identified five different native white species that are endemic to Hawaii and don't occur in nature anyplace else in the world. 
And those early hybridizers used the native various of the native whites more than any of the others of the other hibiscus in their hybridizing as both pod parent and pollen parent. So you could safely say that all tropical hibiscus are, let's say, 98% of all tropical hibiscus every place in the world if you could trace their genealogies back to 1911, would have native Hawaiian hibiscus in their genealogy. So that's pretty cool, I think. I've seen you know a list of names here, Kauai white, rice white, Knudsen white. Yeah, and those were names given by the early missionaries and the early hybridizers to various of the whites. Those names are no longer used. I would love to emphasize that of those first thousand hibiscus, the there was one person that created 500 of them, and he never received credit for it. So he really is the father of modern hybrid hibiscus. His name was Valentine Stillman Holt, a Hawaiian gentleman who worked for the Hawaii Agricultural Experiment Station. So that's just pretty cool that that a Hawaiian gentleman produced 500 of the first thousand. And you're I guess, passion with these hybrids. I mean, how many do you work with these days? Oh, my goodness. Over the 21 years I've been hybridizing, I've probably created maybe 20,000 hibiscus hybrids. How many thousand? (laughs) 20,000. Wow. But out of those, I'm very snooty on what, what I keep. So they have to be really unique. So perhaps... I keep maybe 3% of what I create, and then we compost the ones that we don't keep. So, um, And then eventually some of the earlier ones are replaced by ones that are, um, are better, more interesting, or whatever. So at any given time, I have maybe 300 various varieties that we're growing. Uh, Not all of them are available for sale at the same time because it takes about a year to grow them out from cuttings, but I'm surrounded by beauty all the time. I am so blessed. It's really cool. Now, I've seen you at farmer's markets at the Oahu Nurserymen's uh, plant sale and uh, bought a lovely lavender hibiscus there. But how has the pandemic affected, you know, your outreach to customers? It's been very interesting because of my age. I've chosen to keep the nursery, the physical nursery, closed just to keep myself and my employees as safe as, as possible. However, we have continued to sell via my website and which is hibiscuslady.com and people order and pay me over the phone and pick up their plants at the entrance to the nursery without any contact at all so um so that has worked out really well i'm most grateful that i'm able to continue to employ a couple of people and keep the business going it's been incredible i was completely surprised i was guessing at the beginning when i made the decision to keep the nursery closed that I was going to end up going out of business, but that hasn't happened at all. Again, I'm very grateful. And I think a lot of people staying home during the pandemic has increased people's interest in yard work. So there are an awful lot of beautiful new hibiscus in a lot of people's yards right now, which is uh, amazing. And uh, again, I'm most grateful for that. Well, I'm amazed at the variety of hibiscus that are out there uh, in the marketplace. You know, there's giant ones and just brilliant colors. Yeah. Yeah. So what I'm looking for, every hybridizer has certain things they're looking for. But in my case, I go for color. So the quality of the plant is very high also in my list of necessities. But it has to be unique. It has to usually have amazing color and amazing combinations of color. So there might be one that is hot pink with white snowflakes all over it. There might be one that's a deep purple with a taupe colored edge. I have one that is khaki colored. So I'm for me, I'm not necessarily looking for a huge flower or a small flower. 
I'm looking for a unique flower that will just be really, really special. And then the other thing that I paid particular attention to are five native white hibiscus, which are, like I said, in the gene pool of most hibiscus, are fragrant. And so they are the only fragrant hibiscus in the lilibiscus uh, gene pool. And uh, so I often use those to try to introduce fragrance into the hibiscus. So that has resulted in quite a few fragrant tropical hibiscus. And that's really cool. I talked to someone who lives on Hibiscus Drive and they were battling with pests. And, uh, you know, and yeah. I just don't know uh, if you have any tips for folks out there who have uh, hibiscus plants. Absolutely. The reason that there are a lot of pests is because People bring in plants. A lot of times they might smuggle in plants from other parts of the world that have pests that are not native to Hawaii. And then those can gain a foothold and and spread, which is a bummer. But one thing you can do, a lot of times the pests start out underneath the leaves. So if you can go out when you're watering, they love water. If you can go out a couple times a week and take your hose and put it on a hard spray setting and flood the hibiscus starting at the bottom of the leaves, at the bottom of the plant, and then take the hose all the way up so that you're blasting off any pests and pest eggs that get uh, started. And that will cut way, way down on the necessity to use pesticides. So that's always a good thing, I think. The other natural thing you can do is to use neem oil and dilute it to whatever the packaging says. And you can spray that again, especially underneath the leaves, early, early in the morning or very late in the afternoon. That actually just smothers any pests that are present. So that can be done only when you see pests present. And so those two things are really helpful. Gosh, what about fertilizer? Any tips about that? Yeah. They like a low middle number, so low phosphorus, and a high third number, high potassium. And you can use that once a month. You can also spray it again early in the morning or very late afternoon so you don't burn the leaves. And the other thing that you can do is get some Epsom salt, which is actually sulfate of magnesium, and it's a minor element that hibiscus just loves. So it is something that maybe every two months, you, if your plant is in the ground, just take a handful of Epsom salt, throw it on the ground, and water it in. Your plants will be really, really happy if you do that. Okay, good tips. And then, gosh, of the varieties that you've uh, experimented with, I don't know. What's your favorite this month? <laughs> <laughs> I love the multicolored ones. So you can tell which ones if you know my family. I will honor people in my family by giving them a name. So there's uh, one granddaughter is Calais Alameda. Uh, and so I have quite a few named for her. Calais Rainbow, Calais Valentine. Another granddaughter is Lealoha. And so yesterday, actually, I named a gorgeous eight-inch double uh, Lealoha's Valentine. It's hot pink with white snowflakes on it, just stunning, absolutely stunning. And the other way you can tell which ones are my favorite, and this is a secret, okay, is if I give them a Hawaiian name or a name uh, of a Hawaiian song, then that usually means that I think it's a really, really special flower. That was Jill Coriel, known as the Hibiscus Lady. And tomorrow we learn more about the native Hawaiian hybridizer, Valentine Stillman Holt, who Coriel regards as the father of modern hibiscus hybrids. Support for HPR comes from UH Manoa's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute for ages 50 and older with virtual and in-person courses such as art, film, history, and gardening. Classes begin May 31st. More by searching Osher Hawaii. The news and music you hear on HPR are helped made possible by nearly 200 local organizations. 
reaching you with their message and making a difference every day. Mahalo to the Rice Partnership, Hawaii Performing Arts Festival, and Kiholo Kai. They believe, just as you do, in the power of public radio. See a full list of our underwriters at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from Manoa Valley Theater's play Cambodian Rock Band, the story of a Khmer Rouge survivor returning to his home country with his American-born daughter, featuring live music. Opens May 5th, manoavalleytheater.com. Welding is the process of joining metal parts together using a form of heat. Welders can find careers as auto body mechanics, iron workers in construction, manufacturing on the assembly line, or pipe fitters at Pearl Harbor. Jobs vary and pay depends on the industry and skills of the tradesperson. Today, we give a nod to National Welding Month. The Conversations Lillian Song talked to some Honolulu Community College students earning their associate degree about their chosen career path. My name is Davis. I'm from Honolulu, Hawaii. I've been working restaurants and hospitality pretty much my whole life. So ever since the pandemic, I opted for a trade. A friend of mine actually went here, and he works at Pearl Harbor Shipyard now. I want to be able to go into the shipyard and do stick welding. Majority of it is stick welding, not as much fabrication, more boat repair. If you have any interest, give it a try, you know. And eye coordination kind of thing, so if you're good at sports or anything like that, I think you'll be really good at welding. <laughs> My name is Owen Wehara. I'm retired for 13 years. The reason why I got into this program. My brother and I, we bought five acres of land in Maui. He has a nursery. I have an orchard nursery farm. So I wanted to weld a lot of things, gates, fences, structures racks and stuff for him. I also want to make some trailers and stuff like that to haul the equipment around. So this is my second year. This is a two-year program. This is my last semester. We learned different types of welding, stick, pig, mig. Some are better for different purposes. That's why I wanted to get into the second year where I learned to weld aluminum, stainless steel, and braze brass and whatever else so that I can build structures. Things that don't rust, <laughs> termites don't eat. Welding is a useful trade, most skilled. It's a very good field because it's a basic field. From welding, you can do auto body mechanics, you can build heavy industry, iron workers, pipe fitters at Pearl Harbor, wherever, there's big industry. On the mainland, there's a big need for welders, so all kinds of fields, so from here, you can do all kinds of things. My name's Casey, I'm from McCulley area. Originally, I started out at Manoa and I had tried pursuing a regular college degree, you know, something like business, but I found out that wasn't for me. I decided to try a trade, so I do jewelry making as a hobby, and since soldering is kind of like welding, I was like, okay, I'll try welding, and I ended up really liking working with my hands and actually making something. So what have you made so far in this class? I've made like this side table over here and this dustpan out of galvanized steel. I have a mild steel one at home that's way heavier. But um, I used the brazing processes on the corners because galvanized steel has a coating on it so it doesn't rust. It doesn't like to be welded. Plus it's very thin to kind of keep it lightweight. Yeah, that was hard because it's the first time I was working with metal as thin as this. Very nice. So cool, Casey. And then you're really close to finishing the program. You're set to graduate. What are your future plans? I'm hoping to get a union like apprenticeship in Hawaii. But if not, I might end up going to the mainland and pursuing maybe like learning more advanced welding techniques. I want to try to stay in Hawaii. It's just that a lot of the skills that you need it's very expensive to learn, so if you don't have a person that you either you're hired with or if you're part of an apprenticeship, you have to like build up the money, take the classes on the mainland, come back, and then find you know employment, kind of like that. So my dream is that we put more funds or like even just like kind of getting the word out that 
trades are here, you know, we need more skilled workers and if we bring the knowledge to Hawaii to teach the next generation, then it would help sustain Hawaii's economy. Those were the voices of the new generation of Hawaii welders, Davis, Owen, and Casey, Honolulu Community College students, second year students. We also hear from Jeff Schultz, who's an alum. He's been a program instructor for the past six years. Out of high school, working out in the field for a little bit, I learned about welding, how much money they made, what they did. And then I found out Honolulu Community College offered a welding program. So I signed up, took it for two years, got my associates, fell in love with school. I was like, hey, school's great. I'm actually good at it. It's fun. And I decided to continue and take liberal arts classes and then went over to UH and got my bachelor's in secondary education in industrial arts. And right now we're highlighting the highly skilled process of welding and to show appreciation to welders who help keep the world together. Name some examples of welding. Anything from high rises all the way to aircraft you fly in, cars you drive, chairs you're sitting on, ships that bring all our products over to the islands. So welding basically is melting the base metal and adding filler rod into that melted metal. Anything that's metal has most likely been put together by a welder. What are you seeing? Who are those students coming through your class? We're seeing students that didn't like high school or thought it was boring, the traditional high school academic side. And a lot of them feel like maybe they're not smart. In reality, it's just that wasn't their thing. Some of these guys and girls are really smart, but they need to work with their hands. They're very creative people. So this is a perfect fit for them. The courses we offer at Honolulu Community College, whether it's welding, carpentry, auto, diesel, sheet metal, is a good fit for these type of people. You know, when you're welding, what sort of physical realities are you experiencing? It varies. Some welding does require some strength, like iron workers that put up the, the buildings. They need to be able to carry heavy pieces of steel. It's hot. You know, you can get burnt from sparks. Whereas there's another type of welding called TIG welding, where you're sitting down most of the time, welding thin pieces of metal in a shop where the environment's clean. It could be air-conditioned, and there's very little sparks. So it, there's a wide range of jobs in the welding industry for all types of people. Pearl Harbor and some of those other shipyards are very big employers, like Morisco or Pacific Shipyards International. And then they actually contract work out to some smaller shops, you know, mom and pop shops. So those pick up quite a few of our students. And I know like the chair I'm sitting on, that might have some welding. Is there manufacturing in Hawaii? Not so much. So that's the problem for welding jobs. There's a lot more manufacturing up in the West Coast, anywhere in the U.S. pretty much. So that's where we tend to lose our people is to those jobs with the lower cost of living. I see. And is welding something that can go international? Is this a skill set that is marketable globally? Yeah, everybody, similar standards. They might do some things a little bit differently, but for the most part, your skill, whether it's in Hawaii or the U.S. mainland or Japan, Saudi Arabia, all over, it's very similar. So they can do very well. You know, with the rail project going on and with, with that whole fiasco with frogs. And the fact was that they were saying that there wasn't that specific magnesium welder to do the job in Hawaii, so they had to actually ship those guys in. Were you following that conversation? I was following it a little bit, and we have the talent here to do that. We just didn't have the training. Since there's no manufacturing here where nobody really got into those specific details of that type of welding. So therefore, it's cheaper for them to bring somebody in to do it than to train somebody here. And they didn't need the job done quickly. Yeah, correct. So we've been really talking about the practical purposes of welding. Is welding also taken into the art field? Or I've heard something about roses. Yeah, we do 
metal roses in this class once in a while. Um, the sheet metal shop over here used to do that annually for Valentine's Day. That was their big project. We do something very similar and just as a student project. Well, Mother's Day is coming up. Wondering if you guys are going to be shooting for that? Um, I didn't even think about that. So that is a very good idea. We might have to do that. So here at HCC, is there an apprenticeship program that feeds your students through, or how, how do you support welders? We do have an apprenticeship program that's run separately through the, the unions. So they come in either after school, say 5 o'clock in the afternoon, and they take some classes to make them well-rounded in their fields. So we have the iron worker union come in, we have the elevator union come in on Saturdays. The carpenters would come in and learn how to weld. So, okay. yeah. So really this, this skill of welding really is throughout the industry in different various industries, but like people don't think about it, therefore you just don't realize it's there. I keep going back to this chair that I'm sitting on. A welder had hand in it. Yeah, it's, we're the unsung heroes of trades, I guess. <laughs> and that was HCC welding instructor Jeff Schultz talking with HPR's Lillian Song. The welding program offers a one-year certificate and a two-year associate degree. We'll share photos of the student projects and links to HCC's welding program on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. that winds it up for us today. Tomorrow, we hear about a new collaboration among local nonprofits working to address issues faced by Hawaii families struggling to make ends meet. Got some feedback for us? Share your comments or questions about what you heard by calling your talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also connect with us on Facebook. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.